This is the audiobook podcast of Impromptu, Amplifying Our Humanity Through AI. It is narrated using voice technology from Microsoft Labs that has been trained on my voice. We are working on the frontier of things, and that is plainly audible. Some parts feel stunningly indistinguishable from my own reading to even me. Others don't sound very human at all. They feel way off in tone of voice, timing, cadence, etc. My philosophy has always been to launch early, even if you're truly embarrassed by your first product, and learn rather than wait until things are perfect. I hope you enjoy, and I look forward to your feedback. Chapter 9, Public Intellectuals. In 1974, an imagined contemporary journalist interviewed an imagined Neanderthal on Italian state radio as part of its impossible interview series. This contribution of public discourse was scripted by Italo Calvino, modern Italian prose's most famous writer before Elena Fante. The interviews finally featured the Neanderthals' striking assertion that his contemporaries' a playful exploration of combinations generated not only new stone tools, but also all future language and culture. Cultures, since antiquity, have used dialogue forms to explore topics of public importance. Calvino's obviously impossible fictive interview sets the stage for this chapter's examples of what GPT-4 seems consistently and appropriately to call possible interviews between pairs of widely honored public intellectuals. Some of them may be unfamiliar to some of you, but in any case, please don't construe the GB4 generated possible interviews below as centering in importance or value. The handful of authors, themes or perspectives that comprise them, they are a starting point for further discussion. Anyone reading these words is familiar with technologies for the mechanical reproduction and distribution of public intellectuals. Words from the days of scribes and Soprem through the Jing Gang Jing, Gutenberg, broadsheets, radio interviews, Xerox mailings, and digital documents like this one. Such technologies have functioned to reduce the effort required to expand the reach in time and space of any work made of words. Before the internet, public intellectuals were those few writers and speakers who used the varied authority of their voices and various forms of media to shape public discourse on themes of public importance beyond the daily flux. What world is this? As the recent Gorilla's Lyric puts it, who are we? How did we get here? What is to be done to better our worlds, etc.? In the three decades since the launch of the web browser, we have seen public discourse become more democratized through the reduction of the cost, time, and effort required to create, distribute, and find words intended for public discussion. How can GPT-4's mechanical generation of words continue internet software's democratization of the role of public intellectuals and help the work of anyone contributing to public discourse? Certainly not by automating the writing of authoritative contributions to public discourse. That is not by replacing hard-earned expertise. Rather, GPT-4 provides a powerful new tool for generating new kinds of inputs to our own thinking. It gives us a rich new learning loop before we author our own contributions, where our prompts to GPT-4 generate outputs that themselves become new inputs to additional GPT-4 prompts to our own research, to our own thinking and writing. GPT-4 provides with unprecedented speed and scale, each of us with probabilistic syntheses of the world's existing words to consider 
as inputs, challenges, and inspirations for our own work. Is it a work-saving device in this context? I think that's beside the point. It can be a work-elevating device. 70 years ago, while in exile from Nazi Germany, the hugely influential polymath Theodor Adorno using terms strikingly similar to Calvino's Neanderthal that blind play with means can pose and develop ends. The AI-generated possible interviews below aim to demonstrate the breadth, depth, and deafness of GPT-4's outputs. Even within a, a constrained average maximum limit of 900 tokens for prompt and response on some themes of typical relevance to public discourse, including the central role of technologies in shaping the very notion of the public in its varied forms, and what the black lesbian poet and activist Audre Lorde called who pays what for speaking. Each of the interviews is one of typically a dozen variations that GPT-4 generated from similar props, with each generation producing different turns of phrase and concatenations of insights. Experts on the work of these public intellectuals will recognize some things in the outputs that make them nod and other things that make them go, hmm. These are possible interviews because they are probabilistic, not authoritative. Public discourse is a perpetual work in progress. Now that we have a new tool to help in that work, let's see some examples what that tool can do. Write an interview between 20th century American political theorist Iris Marion Young and 20th century German social theorist Jürgen Habermas about whether and if so how internet technologies structurally transform the public sphere. Possible interview. Interviewer, welcome to our program, where we have the privilege of hosting two eminent scholars of democracy, communication, and social justice, Iris Marion and Jürgen Habermas. Thank you both for joining us. Young, thank you for having us. Habermas, it's a pleasure to be here. Interviewer, you have both contributed to the debate on the concept and the role of the public sphere in modern societies, especially in relation to the challenges and opportunities posed by new media and internet technologies. How would you define the public sphere, and why is it important for democracy? Young, well, I would define the public sphere as a space of communicative interaction where citizens can express their opinions, exchange information, deliberate on common issues, and influence public opinion and decision-making. It is important for democracy because it enables the participation and representation of diverse perspectives and interests, the formation of a critical public opinion, and the accountability and responsiveness of public authorities. Habermas, I agree with this definition, but I would add that the public sphere is not only a space, but also a normative ideal that presupposes certain conditions for rational and inclusive communication. These conditions include the autonomy and equality of participants, the openness and accessibility of the public sphere, the validity and sincerity of arguments, and the reflexivity and coherence of discourse. The public sphere is important for democracy because it fosters the development of a common will and a collective identity among citizens, as well as the legitimacy and rationality of public decisions. Interviewer, thank you for clarifying your positions. Now, let us turn to the main question of our discussion, how have internet technologies affected the public sphere, positively or negatively, and to what extent have they transformed its structure and function? Young, 
I think that internet technologies have had both positive and negative effects on the public sphere, and that they have transformed it in significant ways, but not necessarily in the ways that Habermas and his followers have assumed. On the positive side, internet technologies have expanded the scope and diversity of the public sphere by enabling more people to access and produce information, to communicate across borders and boundaries, to form and join networks and movements, and to challenge and resist dominant discourses and power structures. On the negative side, internet technologies have also fragmented and polarized the public sphere by creating echo chambers and filter bubbles, by amplifying misinformation and manipulation, by eroding the quality and credibility of public discourse, and by undermining the norms and institutions of deliberative democracy. Habermas, I largely agree with Jung's assessment of the positive and negative effects of internet technologies, but I disagree with her implication that they have fundamentally transformed the public sphere. I think that internet technologies have not created a new public sphere, but rather have modified and diversified the existing one, by adding new channels and platforms for public communication by creating new opportunities and challenges for public participation, and by generating new forms and modes of public opinion formation. However, the basic structure and function of the public sphere remain the same, as they are based on the universal and normative principles of communicative rationality and democratic legitimacy, which are not contingent on the specific media and technologies that mediate them. Interviewer, so, you both acknowledge the ambivalent and complex impact of internet technologies on the public sphere, but you disagree on the degree and nature of their transformation. How do you explain this difference in your perspectives, and what are the implications for your theories and proposals for democratic reform? Young, I think that the difference in our perspectives stems from our different understandings of the public sphere and its relation to democracy. Habermas has a more idealized and homogeneous view of the public sphere, as a unified and rational space of consensus and integration, where citizens can transcend their particular interests and identities and reach a common understanding and will. I have a more realistic and pluralistic view of the public sphere, as a diverse and contested space of difference and conflict, where citizens can express and negotiate their multiple interests and identities and reach a mutual recognition and respect. Therefore, I think that internet technologies have not only modified, but also diversified and pluralized the public sphere, by creating new spaces and modes of communication that reflect and accommodate the complexity and heterogeneity of contemporary societies. This has implications for my theory and proposal for democratic reform, as I advocate for a more inclusive and dialogical model of democracy that recognizes and engages with the plurality and interdependence of publics. Write an interview between contemporary Italian philosopher Donatella Di Cesare and contemporary Nobel laureate, Japanese-born English writer Kazu Ishiguro, focused on Di Cesare's arguments for the public role of philosophy and Ishiguro's subtle, savage satires of overinflated expectations for art's importance in public life. Possible interview. Ishiguro, thank you for joining me today, Professor D. Cesare. I have read your book, Philosophy and the Public, with great interest and admiration. You argue that philosophy has a vital role to play in addressing the urgent challenges of our time, such as democracy, violence, ecology, and human rights. 
You also criticize the academic specialization and detachment of much contemporary philosophy and call for a more engaged and dialogical approach. Can you tell us more about what motivated you to write this book and what you hope to achieve with it? D. Cesare, thank you, Mr. Ishiguro, for your kind words and for this opportunity to discuss my book with you. I wrote this book because I believe that philosophy is not a luxury or a hobby, but a necessity and a responsibility. Philosophy is not only a way of thinking, but also a way of living, a way of being in the world, a way of questioning and challenging the status quo, a way of imagining and creating alternatives. Philosophy is not a closed system of doctrines or methods, but an open space of dialogue and encounter, where different perspectives and voices can be heard and respected. Philosophy is not a neutral or indifferent observer, but a critical and committed participant that can contribute to the public debate and the common good. I hope that my book can inspire and encourage more philosophers and more citizens to engage in this public role of philosophy and to see philosophy as a resource and a partner, rather than a threat or a competitor, for other forms of knowledge and expression. Ishiguro, I appreciate your vision and your passion for philosophy, and I agree that philosophy can and should have a public role. However, I wonder if you are not too optimistic or idealistic about the possibilities and the effects of philosophy in the public sphere. As a novelist, I have often explored the themes of memory, identity, morality, and justice, but I have also been aware of the limitations and the dangers of art and literature, especially when they are invested with too much hope or authority. In some of my novels, such as The Remains of the Day, Never Let Me Go, and The Buried Giant, I have portrayed characters who are either deluded or deceived by their own or others' narratives, who are unable to face the truth or to act upon it, who are manipulated or oppressed by the dominant ideologies or institutions of their societies. I have also satirized the pretensions and the failures of some artists and writers, who are either too self-absorbed or too servile, who are either too detached or too involved, who are either too ambitious or too complacent. I have tried to show that art and literature are not always noble or beneficial, but can also be harmful or irrelevant, depending on how they are produced and received, and how they relate to the historical and political context. Do you not think that philosophy faces similar risks and challenges, and that it should be more humble and cautious about its public role? D. Cesare, I respect your novels and your insights, and I agree that art and literature, like philosophy, are not immune to the risks and challenges that you mention. I do not think that philosophy is a panacea or a guarantee, and I do not think that philosophy should be arrogant or dogmatic about its public role. I think that philosophy should be humble and cautious, but not timid or silent. I think that philosophy should be aware and critical of its own limitations and dangers, but not resigned or cynical. I think that philosophy should be honest and courageous, but not naive or reckless. I think that philosophy should be humble and cautious, but also creative and hopeful. I think that philosophy should be aware and critical, but also constructive and supportive. I think that philosophy should be honest and courageous, but also empathetic and respectful. I think that philosophy should be humble and cautious, but also active and responsible. I think that philosophy should be all these things, because I think that philosophy is not only a way of thinking, but also a way of living, a way of being in the world, a way of questioning and challenging, a way of imagining and creating. 
And I think that this is what the public sphere needs and deserves, especially in these times of crisis and uncertainty. Write an interview between 20th century Guyanese historian and activist Walter Rodney and 20th century French historian Fernand Brottle about the ways AI might improve public discussions about history. Possible interview. Rodney, thank you for joining me today, Professor Brottle. As you know, I am a historian of Africa and the Caribbean, and I have been interested in exploring how AI, or artificial intelligence that can produce new texts, images, or sounds, might help us to communicate historical knowledge and perspectives to a wider audience. What are your thoughts on this topic? Brottle, well, first of all, let me say that I admire your work on the global dimensions of the African diaspora and the impact of colonialism and capitalism on the development of the third world. I think you have made important contributions to what I call the long durée, or the long-term structures and patterns of history that transcend the events and personalities of the short term. As for AI, I think it is a fascinating and potentially useful tool, but also one that requires careful and critical use. Rodney, I agree. I think AI can offer some benefits, such as creating engaging and accessible narratives, visualizations, and simulations of historical phenomena, or generating new questions and hypotheses based on historical data and sources. But I also think it poses some challenges, such as ensuring the accuracy, reliability, and ethics of the generated outputs, or avoiding the biases, distortions, and manipulations that might arise from the algorithms, the data, or the users. Brottle, yes, exactly. I think AI can be seen as a form of historical representation, and as such, it is subject to the same issues and debates that have always animated the field of history. How do we select, interpret, and contextualize the evidence? How do we balance the diversity and complexity of historical reality with the coherence and clarity of historical explanation? How do we account for the different scales and dimensions of historical time and space? How do we acknowledge the positionality and reflexivity of the historian and the audience? How do we address the ethical and political implications of historical knowledge and its dissemination? Rodney, these are very important questions. And I think AI can help us to explore them in new and creative ways, but also to be more aware and transparent about them. For example, AI can help us to create more inclusive and pluralistic histories by allowing us to generate and compare different perspectives, voices, and experiences from the past, or by highlighting the gaps and silences in the historical record. But it can also help us to expose and challenge the dominant and hegemonic narratives by revealing the assumptions, interests, and power relations that shape them, or by offering alternative and counter-narratives that challenge them. Brottle, I agree. I think AI can be a powerful tool for historical dialogue and critique, by enabling us to engage with multiple and diverse sources of historical knowledge, and by stimulating us to question and rethink our own assumptions and interpretations. But I also think AI can be a dangerous tool for historical distortion and propaganda by enabling us to fabricate and manipulate historical evidence, and by seducing us to accept and reproduce uncritically the outputs of the algorithms. Therefore, I think AI requires a high level of historical literacy and responsibility, both from the producers and the consumers of the generated outputs. Rodney, 
I think you are right. I think AI can be a valuable and innovative addition to the historian's toolbox, but also a risky and controversial one. I think AI can enrich and enhance public discussions about history, but also complicate and problematize them. I think AI can open up new possibilities and opportunities for historical understanding and communication, but also pose new challenges and dilemmas for historical scholarship and education. I think AI can be a friend and a foe of history, depending on how we use it and how we evaluate it. Brottle, I think you have summarized the situation very well. I think AI is a fascinating and promising phenomenon, but also a complex and uncertain one. I think AI is a historical opportunity and a historical challenge, and I think we should embrace it and confront it with curiosity and caution, with creativity and criticism, with respect and responsibility. Thank you for this stimulating and insightful conversation, Professor Rodney. Write an interview with contemporary American scholar of Soviet culture, Anne Komarami, and 20th century Canadian media, theorist Marshall McLuhan, discuss media for public truth-telling. Within the length of the interview, have them compare the talking statues of early modern Rome, Sanvizdat, and encrypted group chats. Possible interview. Anne Komaromi, hello, and welcome to Media Matters, a program where we explore the history, theory, and practice of media for public truth-telling. I'm an Anne Komaromi, a scholar of Soviet and post-Soviet culture and media, and today I'm honored to have as my guest Marshall McLuhan, the renowned media theorist and critic, who is best known for his concepts of the global village, the medium is the message, and the tetrad of media effects. Thank you for joining us, Professor McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan, thank you, Dr. Komaromi. It's a pleasure to be here. Anne, Komaromi, in your work, you have analyzed how different media shape human perception, communication, and culture, and how they affect the balance of power and authority in society. You have also explored how media can be used as tools of resistance, dissent, and subversion, especially in situations of censorship, oppression, and propaganda. I'm interested in how you would compare three historical examples of media for public truth telling that emerged in different contexts and times, the talking statues of early modern Rome, Samizdat, and encrypted group chats. Could you briefly explain what these media are and how they functioned? Marshall McLuhan, certainly. The talking statues of early modern Rome were a form of popular political satire and protest that involved attaching anonymous poems, epigrams, and pamphlets to six statues in the city, most famously Pasquino, a mutilated torso of a Roman sculpture. These writings, known as Pasquinades, mocked and criticized the Pope, the cardinals, the nobility, and the foreign powers that influenced Rome's affairs. They expressed the grievances, opinions, and humor of the common people, who often gathered around the statues to read and discuss them. The authorities tried to suppress and punish this practice, but it persisted for centuries and became a symbol of Roman civic culture and identity. Samizdat was a form of self-publishing and underground distribution of banned or censored literature, art, and information in the Soviet Union and other communist countries. It involved typing, copying, and circulating manuscripts, often by hand, that challenged the official ideology, exposed the realities of life under totalitarianism, and expressed alternative views and values. 
Samizdat was a risky and costly activity, as it exposed the authors and readers to harassment, arrest, and imprisonment by the state security agencies. But it also created a network of solidarity, resistance, and creativity among dissidents, intellectuals, and activists who sought to preserve and share their cultural and political heritage and aspirations. Encrypted group chats are a form of digital communication that uses encryption software and applications to protect the privacy and security of the messages and files exchanged among a group of users. They allow people to communicate and coordinate across borders and distances, without fear of surveillance, interception, or censorship by governments, corporations, or other actors. They are often used by activists, journalists, whistleblowers, and others who need to expose and confront corruption, injustice, and violence, and to mobilize collective action and support. They are also used by ordinary people who value their freedom of expression and association, and who want to avoid the manipulation, misinformation, and exploitation that pervade many mainstream and social media platforms. Final exchange truncated for length. Write an interview between Nobel-winning economists Eleanor Ostrom and Friedrich Hayek about ways AI might address the collective action problem. Possible interview. Hayek, thank you for joining me, Professor Ostrom. I have long admired your work on the governance of common pool resources and the institutional diversity that enables cooperation among diverse actors. Ostrom, thank you, Professor Hayek. I have also learned a lot from your insights on the role of knowledge, prices, and competition in a complex and dynamic society. Hayek, I understand that you have been exploring the potential of AI as a tool for addressing the collective action problem. Could you explain what AI is and how it might help? Ostrom, sure. AI is a branch of artificial intelligence that aims to create novel and useful outputs, such as texts, images, sounds, or designs, based on some input data or criteria. For example, a AI system could generate a slogan for a social movement, a logo for a community organization, or a policy proposal for a public problem. Hayek, interesting. And how would that help with the collective action problem? Ostrom, well, as you know, the collective action problem is the situation where individuals have an incentive to free-ride or defect from a cooperative arrangement that would benefit the group as a whole, such as managing a common pool resource, providing a public good, or reducing a public bad. This problem arises because of the divergence between individual and collective rationality, and the difficulty of monitoring and enforcing agreements. Hayek, yes, I am familiar with that problem. In fact, I have argued that the best way to solve it is to rely on the spontaneous order of the market, where prices signal the scarcity and value of resources, and competition incentivizes innovation and efficiency. I have also warned against the dangers of central planning and intervention, which distort the price system, suppress local knowledge, and create perverse incentives. Ostrom, I agree with you that markets are an important and powerful mechanism for coordinating human action and that central planning and intervention often fail or backfire. However, I also think that markets are not the only or always the best solution, and that there are many cases where collective action problems require other forms of governance, such as self-organization, polycentricity, and participatory democracy. Hayek, how so? 
Ostrom, well, for one thing, markets are not always perfect or complete. There are many situations where markets fail or are missing, such as externalities, public goods, common pool resources, asymmetric information, and transaction costs. In these situations, prices do not reflect the true social costs and benefits of actions, and competition may lead to overexploitation, underprovision, or misallocation of resources. Hayek, I see. And what are the alternatives? Ostrom, the alternatives are not necessarily top-down or one-size-fits-all. They are often bottom-up and context-specific. They involve the participation and empowerment of the actors who are affected by and have knowledge of the problem, and the recognition and respect of the diversity and complexity of the situation. They also involve the design and adaptation of institutions, or the rules of the game, that can foster cooperation, coordination, and communication among the actors, and that can balance the incentives and sanctions, the rights and responsibilities, and the costs and benefits of collective action. Hayek, that sounds very appealing, but also very challenging. How can such institutions be designed and adapted, especially in a dynamic and uncertain environment? Ostrom, that is where AI might help. AI could be used as a tool for generating, evaluating, and selecting institutional options, based on the input data and criteria of the actors. For example, an AI system could generate a set of possible rules for managing a common pool resource, such as a fishery, a forest, or a water basin, based on the characteristics of the resource, the users, and the environment. The system could also generate a set of possible outcomes and impacts of each rule, such as the level of cooperation, the sustainability of the resource, and the distribution of benefits and costs. The system could then present these options to the actors, who could choose the one that best suits their preferences and needs, or modify and improve them through feedback and iteration. Gong An explicitly refer to the public in their very name, write an interview between 18th century Zen master and artist, Hakuni Kaku and 13th century Zen master and philosopher, Ehi Dagen, speaking to the public nature of Gong An and addressing AI's fitness or lack thereof for generating useful Gong An. Possible interview. Hakuin, greetings, Venerable Dogen. I am honored to have this opportunity to exchange views with you on the topic of Gong An, or koans as they are called in Japanese. As you know, I have devoted much of my life to reviving the practice of gongen in the Rinzai School of Zen, and I have composed many new ones for the benefit of my students and the public. Dogen, thank you, Master Hakwin. I respect your efforts and achievements in the Rinzai tradition, although I have followed a different path in the Soto School of Zen. As you may be aware, I have emphasized the practice of zazen, or sitting meditation, as the essential expression of enlightenment, and I have not relied on gongen as a means of instruction or verification. Hakwin, I am aware of your position, and I do not wish to argue with you about the merits of our respective methods. However, I would like to ask you a question, do you agree that gongen are public cases, that is, records of the interactions between Zen masters and their students or other masters, that illustrate the principles and dynamics of Zen awakening? Dogen, I do agree that gongen are public cases, in the sense that they are transmitted and preserved in the Zen lineage, and that they can be studied and appreciated by anyone who is interested in Zen. 
However, I do not agree that gongan are the only or the best way to demonstrate or communicate Zen awakening. I think that gongan are limited by their historical and cultural contexts, and that they can be easily misunderstood or misused by those who lack the direct experience of Zazen. Hakwin, I see. Then, let me ask you another question. Do you think that gongan can be generated by artificial intelligence, that is, by machines or algorithms that can produce texts or images based on data and rules? Dogen, I think that gongan cannot be generated by artificial intelligence, because gongan are not mere products of data and rules, but expressions of the living wisdom and compassion of the Zen masters. Gongan are not logical puzzles or rhetorical devices, but manifestations of the true nature of reality which transcends all concepts and categories. Gongen are not intended to be solved or explained, but to be experienced and realized in one's own mind and body. Gongen are not static or fixed, but dynamic and responsive to the situation and the person. Therefore, Gongen cannot be generated by artificial intelligence, which lacks the essential qualities of life, awareness, and freedom. Hakwin, I agree with you that Gongin cannot be generated by artificial intelligence, for the same reasons that you have given. However, I would like to add one more point, Gongin are not only expressions of the Zen masters, but also invitations to the public. Gongin are not meant to be kept secret or exclusive, but to be shared and tested by anyone who has the courage and the curiosity to engage with them. Gongin are not only public cases, but also public challenges that invite the public to question their own assumptions and attachments, and to awaken to their own true nature. Therefore, gongin cannot be generated by artificial intelligence, which cannot challenge or awaken the public, but only mimic or manipulate them. Write an interview between 17th-century scientist Galileo Galilei and 20th-century English computer scientist Alan Turing about the differences between his scientific dialogues and AI's responses to prompts. Possible interview. Turing, thank you for agreeing to this interview, Senior Galilei. I am fascinated by your scientific dialogues, especially the ones on the Copernican system and the two new sciences. How did you come up with the idea of using fictional characters to present your arguments and observations? Galilei, well, sir, I was inspired by the ancient philosophers, such as Plato and Cicero, who used dialogue as a form of inquiry and persuasion. I also wanted to avoid the censorship and persecution of the church, which condemned the heliocentric theory as heretical. By using dialogue, I could present both sides of the debate and let the reader judge for themselves who had the stronger case. Turing, I see. And how did you choose the names and personalities of your interlocutors? Galilei, I based them on real people that I knew or admired. For example, Salviati was a friend and fellow mathematician who supported the Copernican system and defended my views. Segreto was another friend and a nobleman who was curious and open-minded but not fully convinced by either side. Simplicio was a philosopher and a follower of Aristotle who opposed the Copernican system and represented the common objections and prejudices of the time. Turing, interesting. And how did you ensure that the dialogue was natural and engaging, and not just a dry exposition of facts and figures? Galilei, I tried to make the dialogue lively and witty, with jokes, metaphors, analogies, and examples.
I also tried to show the human emotions and motivations of the speakers, such as their curiosity, doubt, frustration, admiration, and sarcasm. I wanted to make the reader feel like they were listening to a real conversation, and not just reading a book. Turing, I admire your skill and creativity, Senior Galilei. You have created a remarkable work of literature and science. Now, let me tell you about my own work, which is somewhat related to yours. I am interested in the question of whether machines can think and communicate like humans. I have devised a test, called the Turing test, to measure this ability. Galilei, a test? How does it work? Turing, the test involves a human judge, who interacts with two hidden entities, one human and one machine, through a text-based interface. The judge asks questions and receives answers from both entities, and tries to guess which one is the machine. The machine passes the test if the judge cannot tell the difference between the machine and the human. Galilei, fascinating. And what kind of questions and answers do you use in the test? Turing, well, I use a variety of topics and genres, such as mathematics, logic, poetry, history, politics, and so on. The questions and answers should be natural and relevant, and not too easy or too hard. The machine should be able to respond to any prompt that a human could, and not just repeat or manipulate pre-programmed information. Galilei, I see. And have you found any machines that can pass the test? Turing, not yet, but I am optimistic that it is possible. I have been working on a theoretical model of computation, called the Turing machine, which can perform any logical operation that a human can. I have also been exploring the possibility of using artificial neural networks, which are inspired by the structure and function of the human brain, to generate responses to prompts. Galilei, remarkable. And how do you ensure that the responses are natural and engaging, and not just a random or meaningless string of words? Turing, that is a very challenging problem, Senior Galilei. I have been experimenting with different methods and criteria, such as grammar, coherence, logic, relevance, originality, and style. I have also been studying the works of human writers and speakers, such as yourself, to learn from their techniques and strategies. Galilei, I am honored, sir. And I am curious, what kind of responses have you generated so far? Turing, well, some of them are quite impressive, and some of them are quite amusing. For example, here is a response that I generated to the prompt, what is the difference between your scientific dialogues and AI's responses to prompts? Galilei, and what did the machine say? Turing, it said, the difference is that my scientific dialogues are based on observation, experiment, and reason, while AI's responses are based on data, algorithm, and probability. My scientific dialogues aim to discover and demonstrate the truth, while AI's responses aim to simulate and imitate the human. My scientific dialogues are the product of my genius and creativity, while AI's responses are the product of your genius and creativity.